Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. We're going to get you a doctor. I mean, not literally, but you're going to hear from a doctor Uh, and more today. We're talking about COVID, which we haven't done in a while. It's very fitting that we're talking about a public health measure uh, today or a public health issue today because my arm is somewhat sore from my receiving a flu shot this morning at my local CVS. Uh, And I urge all of you to get your flu shots. Maybe we'll have a little bit of time to talk about that too. Uh, But we want to begin with COVID. Uh, Scott Roberts is Associate Medical Director for Infection Prevention at Yale Medicine and Assistant Professor in Infectious Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. And he is going to spend the first two segments of the show with us. Welcome, uh, Scott Roberts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's just begin in a very general way. Obviously, the baseline for COVID got lower and lower and lower for for almost every index you could think of. Um, But it does seem as though, and if you look at international figures for hospitalization, for example, it does seem as though there's something of a COVID surge happening right now. But I mean, when you put it in context, it's certainly nothing like what we've seen in previous years. So I don't know. How does COVID look to you, generally speaking, right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think generally, we are certainly better now than we've been at prior years in the middle of November. Uh, from a, So I'm a little bit optimistic about that. Uh, COVID, though, it's still here. Um, you know, every day I take a look at our hospital's COVID numbers, how our state's doing, and we sort of remain at this smoldering moderate to low level where we've been actually for the past few months. Um, you know, you mentioned that international data is showing some increase in hospitalizations. Um, we see some signals that there may be a slight increase or at the start of something, and that's just based on wastewater data and how our own you know, internal hospitalizations look. 
But, you know, it remains to be seen. And I think we'll have a clearer picture in the next few weeks. Uh, you know, just again, reassuringly, we are well below where we were last year and or the, actually the past three winters. Uh, so I think that's the good news piece. But what I can say about, you know, what's the most prevalent respiratory virus right now in our community, you know, it, it remains COVID. All right. Now, meanwhile, there is um, a, a newly formulated version of the of the vaccine. Uh, we can talk about the specifics of it, uh, but it's obviously something that that most people should should be getting. Uh, but most people are not. Uh, I've seen different sets of numbers, but the latest one from the CDC says roughly fourteen percent of adults eighteen plus, four point nine percent of children. Uh, higher rates among people like me who are over 65, but it, that's still at, what, 30, 30%. I mean, <laughs> these aren't good numbers, right? These are, This is a vaccine people should be getting. Uh, it's somewhat specific. We'll get into this to some of the variants we may be encountering uh, over the next nine months or so. Uh, this is going to be a little bit either depressing or alarming to you that yeah. the, up, the uptake is so low. Yeah, no, I... I I actually, when when I first read the initial reports from the CDC, I had to read them twice because I thought there was a typo. It <laughs> right. was so low. Um, so I, I'm certainly discouraged, I think, that there's been such low uptake amongst the public with this vaccine. Um, and I, I think from a general point of view, you know, this is going to evolve to a vaccine that's similar to flu, where it's being given once a year. It's updated against whatever variants are circulating at the time. And to, to this day, it really remains one of our best preventative tools to protect people against the bad outcomes with COVID, such as severe disease and death. Um, so, you, you know, that number is going up slowly as we enter the winter season, but it remains pretty depressingly low, especially when you compare it to the flu vaccine, for example. Right. And I think there's a bunch of different reasons for this. But one of them, I think, is a kind of complacency, a sense, well, you know, people hear this is seasonal, it's endemic, um, it, it's um, it's something we're going to have to live with. Uh, it, and there isn't the same level of urgency we think about the vaccinations in, uh, in early 2021 when, you know, I mean, it'd be like the National Guard would be there and people would be lined yeah. up and you couldn't wait to get this, this stuff. There just isn't the culture of it, I guess, right now is sort of a problem. There isn't a cultural sense that this is something that needs to be done. No, you, you, I, I think you're, you know, hitting the nail on the head right here. I, I you know, we are. It, there's no denying we're in a different spot now than we have been ever before. And you know, there's significant hybrid immunity in our community, whether it's from vaccination or uh, actual infection or both. Um, and the, obviously, the Omicron variant has evolved to be a more milder strain than what we remember from 2020 and 2021 with the original strain and the Delta strains. Uh, but COVID is still here. You know, I, I can say, you know, we have 30 or so people hospitalized with it right now at, at Yale. Uh, five or so of those are in the ICU. Some of those are on mechanical ventilators. So certainly we're in a different situation, but we are still seeing bad disease in some people who are high risk. Yeah, and yeah. I, I especially encourage the vaccine in those who are high risk and, and may end up needing, needing to get hospitalized. I think also if people aren't really paying attention to this, they may not understand the concept of waning immunity. They may think, oh, well, I had COVID and I also got vaccinated for it once. And I mean, how much do I really need to do here? And it, the reality is 
and, and other people, if you say waning immunity, they think that's a total discrediting of vaccines. Well, if it's going to wane, why bother with it? I mean, no, the waning immunity part of this is why it's really important to keep up with it. Um, but maybe you could say something a little bit more learned than what I just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, the, the immunity wanes pretty quickly for protection against infection overall. You know, so so you may get infected with COVID, but the entire purpose of the vaccine is to give you that backbone of protection that even if you do get sick, it's going to make a severe disease turn into a mild disease. And so, you know, yeah, it may not prevent the full infection, but the goal is to keep the vaccinated person out of the hospital. And what would turn a pretty devastating illness into something that's, you know, nothing more than a common cold from a symptom standpoint. Um, and that longevity fortunately appears to hold up quite well, uh, certainly beyond weeks on the order of months, if not longer. Uh, but, you know, for those who haven't been vaccinated with the current formulation, the immunity, the current variants will likely have bypassed a good deal of our prior immunity to those who got infected, you know, certainly before this winter season. Right. And we'll talk about those variants in just a second here. But there was almost a paradoxical situation that we started to see late September into October, which was on the one hand, we were told that, yes, uh, vaccine coverage is like really, really low, uh, way, way lower than it should be. But on the other hand, anecdotally, a lot of people are having trouble getting the vaccine, which it, those two things seem kind of irre- irreconcilable on their on their face anyway. Why would it be so difficult to get a vaccine that not enough people are getting? Uh, but but that was happening, right? I think it happened even in your family. It happened to myself. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, the, the vaccine came out and I was trying to get it as soon as I could since Entering the winter season, you know, I'm a healthcare worker. I had a number of events coming up, um, and I couldn't find it. Uh, so I, I looked all around my town in Connecticut. Um, I looked at my workplace. I looked kind of ev- everywhere, and it seemed as if the shipments just came slower than they had expected. I'm not sh- I, I, to me, it sounded like they had the vaccines ready from a design perspective. We knew exactly what variant we were going to use, or the pharmaceutical companies did. But actually getting the shots in the arm, there seemed to be a significant delay. And so I actually had to go outside of Connecticut to get my vaccine when it initially rolled out uh, at the very end of September, very early, uh, early part of October. Um, so, you know, that that's a challenge. And, you know, this is me. You know, I work with vaccines and COVID every day. I can't imagine how hard it is for someone who doesn't to kind of find out where they can get it and what they need to know. And so to me, that was a big concern. And it came at, at the wrong time. You know, because October is when we really need to be messaging both COVID and flu vaccine. And uh, because of those delays, I do worry that people didn't get vaccines who otherwise would have. Right. Um, just parenthetically, um, first of all, it's it's wonderful that you were doing what you were doing. But actually, the vaccine uptake among healthcare professionals is it's not too much better than just adults generally. I mean, I'm ast- astonished by those numbers, too. Uh, obviously, if you're you're on the the front line of the battle, you, know, you kind of want to be vaccinated. But it seems even the HCPs, as they're called, uh, got a little complacent about all this. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, we see that kind of all across the nation. There's just overwhelming fatigue from COVID, and you know, I, I'm tired of it too. I I, yeah. I wish it were here, but you know, it is. And I think it, we are really trying to do what we can to message the importance of vaccination, not just for the public, but especially for our healthcare workers, uh, since we we really do care for vulnerable populations who who may be more impacted from COVID when you compare them to the non-vulnerable populations. Right. So there's some differences in this vaccine rollout from the past 
Um, this is done more through the commercial market. Um, it's bringing public and private health insurers back into the mix. Um, it's not like the old days where the federal government was basically buying and distributing the vaccine. So that's an issue, and that, and that may have a little something to do with the low rate. But I'm going to say something now, and you don't even have to respond to it. You, you may not want to, but I actually think that there may be a mistake dumping such a huge task on to change like Walgreens and CVS, which are kind of famously right now understaffed with underpaid people. They have other jobs to do as well. My significant other went to get uh, her, I think her flu shot, and she was sitting in the little booth and the woman from the pharmacy came in and my significant other said, you know, you realize in about a year you're going to be delivering babies here too. Um, You know, and and the, the worker said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that. I would believe almost anything. These, it's been put in the hands of people who have to stop doing what their real job is. They got to stop filling prescriptions, you know, and kind of change their brain set and get over to this booth and figure out, you know, where the order came in. It strikes me maybe as not the ideal public health solution. Oh, I, I fully agree. Um, and, you know, I, I too face those same challenges, just waiting for, you know, who, uh, tens, 30 minutes or more in line at my local pharmacy um, to get anything and, and to get vaccinated. You know, my wife recently went and got vaccinated and had to wait for quite a prolonged period of time. And I, I don't know the impact of that with changing this from the government payer standpoint, but I, I imagine it's only going to hurt things. And more than that, you're going to see disparities in care in terms of access and what's covered and, and what's not covered. And I'm sure we're going to see immense variability across the state about people who are now not able to get this vaccine when they previously would have been able to. So I, I think you're right. This is a huge problem that uh, is coming at a poor time. Yeah. I mean, to your point, one of the things we saw, I think, during the state of emergency was what the healthcare system in America would like if it were ramped up in a more equitable way, uh, if Medicaid coverage w- were increased. It was sort of like this is sort of the way that, that our country should be all the time. Uh, but instead, it's it's only for emergencies. Um, I'm just also uh, maybe we can say something about to somebody listening right now, somebody who's listening right now and, and something that Scott Roberts has said has made you think I should probably get the vaccine. Um it might be worth saying how important it would be, how how much better today is than tomorrow, how much better the, the tomorrow is than the day after tomorrow, right? These vaccines, whether it's flu or COVID, they need time to kind of cook up, so to speak, and you're heading into some holidays. I'm assuming promptness is, is of the essence. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and actually, it's almost too late from a Thanksgiving perspective. Generally, with, with any vaccine, we don't see our vaccine immunity ramp up until about two weeks after that shot's given. So that's sort of when we start to think about, okay, that's when I'm protected two weeks after that shot goes in the arm. So until then, the benefits, it's not there. So I think now especially is the time to get it really because for several reasons. First, we're going into the holiday season when many people are gathering from many different areas of the United States. There's a lot of travel. Uh, But second, we're entering the winter season when historically all viruses go up in prevalence for a number of reasons. Um, You know, everybody's inside, windows are closed, there's poor ventilation. Um, And and with the holidays, I think that does set somewhat of a bad combination that's, you know, may increase COVID in our communities. Um, And so if there is a time to get vaccinated, you know, it's today. Next best time would be tomorrow, but I, I, I wouldn't wait too long 
to get that vaccine if you are on the fence about it. Yeah. And, you know, the seasonality, I don't know, there was a really large study released in the last few days about seasonality. And it's kind of interesting that it's kind of asynchronous. I mean, Rochester, Minnesota has a slightly different seasonality experience with COVID than New York City does. Although if you think about them in terms of, uh, of latitude and things like that, they're not that different. Um, and, and I think we still probably don't understand why COVID surges in one place at one time. It probably has some things to do with temperature and the way temperature affects behavior and people going inside either to get air conditioning or to get heat. But there's probably a whole bunch of other behavioral issues I was even listening to This Week in Virology, and they were thinking, saying, well, you know, in Minnesota, they go and they hunt deer, and deer can carry on. I mean, who knows, right? There's a way in which this is mysterious still. I, I, I fully agree. I, I don't know if we have the full answers, and, and we might only view this in hindsight and, and see what, what happened. But, you know, I've been humbled so many times in my predictions for what COVID's going to do. And I, I remember 2022 when the BA4, BA5 variants were circulating, we were having surges in the summer mm-hmm. when it was you know, almost in a heat wave. And I, I was just stunned by that, knowing how this really bucked the trends in terms of seasonality. So I, I, my hope is we'll start to see this slow evolution toward a seasonal endemicity. You know, maybe we are seeing that now uh, based on the past few months, but you know, that would make things a lot easier in terms of timing our public health interventions, such as vaccine and and communication. And it's weird because respiratory stuff is not all the same. I mean, the rhinovirus has a different seasonality from RSV. Um, I mean, they're they're substantially different, too. So understanding a a new creature like SARS-CoV-2, it's probably going to take a while. Exactly. And and also how this has impacted our other respiratory viruses, um, you know, last fall, we saw RSV hit way sooner than any of us had expected. And I think we peaked at the end of October, early November, months before we usually peak for RSV. So it's just really it, 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 what we did for COVID changed, you know, not just COVID, but everything we saw, flu, rhinovirus, you know, RSV, just to name a few. All right. We're going to take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to come back. We'll tell you, tell you a little bit uh, about the new variants uh, and other stuff as well. Uh, Scott Roberts is going to stay with us and we will return. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. All right, it's not that bad right now. It's not, <laughs> quarantine does not have word we're using quite yet. Uh, Scott Roberts is Associate Medical Director for Infection Prevention at Yale Medicine and an Assistant Professor in Infectious Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. He is being very generous, generous to us with his time today. So I think it's time to, uh, to meet the variants, uh, as they say. Um, we've got two that we sort of know are in circulation right now, maybe one waxing, one waning, and then two others that are worth worrying a little bit about. So maybe we should begin with the the first two, which I believe are... First of all, I want to just go on record as saying I'm in the camp that says name them after Tolkien elves or something. Because just, you know, these are not sticky in the head. It's very If you're not a medical professional, it's very hard to remember these. But EG5.1 and HV.1. And so, Scott, I think one thing we could say right off the bat is about these two variants is they do match up pretty well with the new vaccine. Uh, the new vaccine should stand a pretty good chance uh, of, of producing neutralizing antibodies, et cetera. But say more about that. Yeah. the, the You know, first I'll say, I think you're going to run out of Tolkien elves pretty quickly <laughs> as we as we get through with the, the whatever COVID variants are coming next. But um, yeah, the two you mentioned, HV1 and EG5, these are just descendants of the Omicron XBB subvariant. And, you know, just the level set, we've been in Omicron really since the winter of 2021. And everything we're seeing are offshoots from those descendants. And the, the two current ones, HV1 and EG5, are a pretty close descendants. You know, I would say um, sons or grandsons of what was put in the vaccine. So the XBB1.5. And preliminary studies show, you know, from a lab perspective and from, you know, a patient neutralizing antibody perspective, that the vaccine holds up pretty well against these variants uh, because of that reason, because they're relatively close descendants of what was put in that vaccine. And you know, every virus evolves. So we we know variants are happening. We know that over time we're going to get new variants. And the hope is always that there's this slow evolution and we won't have some sort of major shift that's going to throw us a curveball. Like as we all remember that Delta changing to Omicron event in the winter of 2021, when it seemed like everybody was infected all at the same time. So I, from for these two variants, you know, I'm I'm pretty optimistic that the vaccine coverage is going to hold up well. Um, whatever variant descends out of EG5 and HV1, it's likely also to hold up well since these are really only a couple mutations different from what was put in the vaccine. Now, there are a couple of other new visitors here that, that may be a little bit different. One of them is BA2.86 uh, and uh, maybe especially JN, JN.1. These aren't maybe lined up quite as well with what we've had before, but what more can you say about that? Yeah, th- these are variants that 
arose, you know, I want to say one to two months ago, and they've now been picked up in a number of different countries. And we haven't seen obvious changes in the behavior of these viruses yet. But the big concern is that instead of these, you know, one to two mutations different, pretty similar ancestry to what we have now, these are very, very big gaps from what we have now. Um, The genetic differences between these new variants and what we have is somewhat on part of what we saw with uh, Delta to Omicron back in 2021. So there is a hypothetical concern that these new variants are going to significantly bypass our immune defenses, both from uh, infection and from vaccination. Now, I think somewhat optimistically, a lot we're starting to get preliminary data on these variants, and it, in spite of the relative distance in the genomic profiles with these variants, it does seem that the vaccine is still going to offer a degree of protection against them. Um, but it, when we first saw these on the scene, it sort of had the at least the genetic markings of something to take very seriously, and we hope that it wouldn't start growing in case numbers and take off. Uh, so far, it hasn't. You know, these sort of remain relatively low level, e- even uh, amongst what we have variant-wise. We're, we've really not seen these take off yet in the United States. Um, and if it does, I think optimistically, the vaccine will offer some protection against it. Um, but but you're right. I think these initially, when we saw them, th- there was that good degree of concern. I think the concern a lot of us have is what's going to descend from these two variants, JN1 and BA286, and is something like that going to be even further removed from what our immunity is is willing to fight and will that lead to a surge yeah i mean in their initial presentation there if you wanted to nerd out about it it was a little bit scary ba26 seems to have a high affinity towards the ace2 receptor which would probably make it more transmissible uh and and there were ways in which jn1 seemed to be not producing the same level of antibody response or not getting the same kind of neutralizing antibody response but the proof of it as you're suggesting is really how it performs out there in the world uh and we probably shouldn't get scared until we see something to really be uh, afraid of um, but speaking of – well, and maybe this is a good time to say something that I just want to make sure that we say, which is there isn't just one thing that's a cone of invisibility for you or, or invincibility for you uh, against this stuff, right? You should be getting vaccinated. You should uh, be in ventilated, well-ventilated spaces if you possibly can. If there's large numbers of people, you, there's times where you should probably pop a mask on. I mean all of the stuff that we talked about doing – during the height of the pandemic, it's all still, I assume, kind of real now and part of the arsenal uh, of of sort of playing defense against new variants. Oh, yeah. The, the, we haven't seen substantial behavioral changes from the virus to suggest that our tried and true methods and our, our the toolkit we have, you know, the, these will still be effective against what we're seeing today. And that includes, you know, what you mentioned, masking, especially in high risk areas. Um uh, washing your hands, avoiding people who are sick, good ventilation. So if it's okay to open those windows or get some sort of air purifier, all that is still going to work for COVID, even with these new variants and, and likely will for for uh, for all future variants. So I think we, we know what we need to do to combat COVID. I always encourage people to take a an assessment of their personal risk tolerance. Um, you know, my answer to that question is going to differ whether I'm a high risk individual who has a low immune system versus, you know, a healthy college kid. 
and I'm not going to see anybody high risk for the next few weeks. You know, maybe that will change my behavior and how I handle this virus. But but these methods work and we do know how to prevent it and how to stop it. Yeah. And uh, this is this may seem like kind of an obvious thing to say, but I'm, I, don't, I don't think it necessarily plays out as an obvious thing in the population. Another point worth making probably is the more healthy you can make yourself in terms of your your nutrition, your diet, your weight, your exercise level, the things that you basically just do to stay healthy, the the more that you increase your chance of surviving an infection or, or maybe not having as severe an, an infection. But once again, you can you can say this with more authority. No, no, you are absolutely right. And all of this has a huge impact on how we respond to respiratory viruses. And now obviously there's modifiable risk factors such as diet and exercise, and there's non-modifiable risk factors such as age. But all of this combines to create you know, the response that you will face against the virus. And, you know, I always encourage whatever people can do to improve those modifiable risk factors, even if it's something as minimal as, you know, getting enough sleep and exercising, you know, enough water intake, washing your hands, all of this can impact when you do see the virus, how are you going to respond to it? Uh, So these are really critically important. So while we're on the subject of response and symptoms, um, these new viruses that come in, the new variants that come in, um, do they produce the same symptom patterns? I, I, what I'm reading suggests that, that, that maybe not, that we're at some distance symptom profile-wise from where we started out. Yeah, I, there are some preliminary data showing that the, the way certain vi- variants behave is slightly different to what others are from a symptom standpoint. Um, you know, some induce less fevers than others. Some others induce less, more or less taste and smell changes compared to others. Um, a lot of this is preliminary. And I would, you know, at this point really advise just when there are symptoms that make you concerned for COVID, just take them seriously and take an at-home test. And that can include symptoms as subtle as, you know, runny nose, sore throat, muscle aches, um, some of these things that we don't classically think about, like, you know, the old fever, cough, shortness of breath, um, you know, the virus has evolved to be more or less of a lower respiratory tract disease and more into an upper respiratory tract disease. So those symptoms such as nasal symptoms and throat symptoms may be more prevalent than those that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, like cough and shortness of breath. Um, although those who are high risk, you know, the, these are symptoms to take very seriously. All right. Since we're talking about nasal symptoms, let's talk about the least attractive and the least romantic uh, topic on our our menu today, and that, that is. And I actually actually had heard this on this week in virology a few weeks ago. There is some evidence that picking. I mean, picking it's it's sort of like getting exercise. You know, getting exercise is a good idea. Being sedentary is a bad idea. Well, picking your nose is a bad idea, just generally speaking. But it may be specifically a bad idea uh, in the world of COVID. So y- you have the ball. Go ahead and run. Yeah. With it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we all do it, and the goal is to prevent doing it as much as we can. the The big fear here is, you know, you shake hands with someone who has COVID. And, you know, that COVID is past your fingers and then you pick your nose and introduce the virus in exactly the place where you don't want to put it. And it's just facilitating the entry of this virus into our bodies. And, you know, several studies now have shown first how prevalent nose picking is amongst public and healthcare workers. Um, And second, that this can be associated with increased risk of COVID, Uh, but not just COVID. You know, this is going to 
play a big role in flu and RSV and rhinovirus and, and all this other transmission where you can see this fomite spread of viruses on surfaces that then get introduced into our bodies at areas where uh, portals of entry where the virus can get in. Um, so it, it's hard to avoid. You know, I know myself, it's almost subconscious at this point, mm -hmm. but it's really critical to think about, you know, I don't want to be touching my eyes, my nose, my mouth until I wash my hands or use Purell or some sort of alcohol-based hand sanitizing gel to kill whatever virus may be lingering there. Um, and I could say to myself, it's hard. You know, I, I do this absentmindedly. Um, I think that is one of the benefits of mask wearing. It's that you really prevent access to your own nose and mouth if you do touch a contaminated surface. Right. I mean, the other, first of all, we recommend that people rewatch the movie Contagion, where Kate Winslet, who's the epidemiologist, says, don't touch your face. Don't, stop touching your face. Don't touch your face. Um, maybe that'll help drive it home. But it's not even just the transfer from a, a fomite transfer to your finger to your nose. It, it's also what happens in your nose. The nose has this kind of mucosa. It has mucosa. It has a kind of protective lining, which I'm assuming if you're kind of <laughs> if you're digging around in there, uh, you're going to maybe make it easier for the virus on your finger or the virus already in, in your upper airways to get into your bloodstream. Yeah, you're going to simply break that mucous membrane barrier or at least impair it so that virus is going to access the bloodstream and cause a and start growing. And it, nose picking is only going to hurt those things. And, and I can't envision a way in which it will help things. So I, I, I do advise avoiding it if anybody is able to from a conscious standpoint. And, and nose picking has a slightly less demonized cousin, and that would be nail biting. And nail biting is also kind of dumb uh, from the perspective we're talking about. Absolutely. It is. Um, it, it's another way by which we can introduce the virus into the areas where it gets in normally. And whatever we can do to avoid that. I think it's a harder sell to, to tell people to wear gloves all the time to avoid nail biting. Uh, but, you know, it's something that needs to be that, you know, when you are aware of it, it, you know, try to try to avoid it as best you can, especially after you've been around somebody sick or you're in, you know, touch surfaces in a public place. Um, you know, the sort of last thing I'd like to spend just a few minutes on is just the difficulty I think that people have getting and understanding relevant information about this. Now, some of this is because it's it's an emerging medical science. COVID is, you know, we're trying to build a bridge and walk across it at the same time. Uh, we're trying to acquire knowledge, um, test it for relevance, and, and implement it uh, as public health measures kind of in, in one big gulp. So it's going to be a confusing situation. And then the public, you know, divides up into, you know, one chunk of people who just don't care and they don't necessarily believe any of this stuff and they're kind of unreachable. And then there's some people who kind of just want to do, you know, whatever everybody else seems to be doing that seems to make sense or whatever their doctors tell them. And then there are a lot of other people who really want to know stuff. And and so I'll give you an example, um, which is that uh, a lot of people right now are thinking or asking or have been since late September, should I get the COVID shot? Just the COVID, COVID shot? Should I get it with the flu shot? Should I wait a little while? How about the RSV shot? Should I combine these things? And, you know, I mean, just looking around, I found one study that indicated that if you get the flu shot and the COVID shot together, there may be a, a better uh, immune response uh, for, for whatever reason. I found another study that indicated a slightly higher incidence of stroke among <laughs> older patients who got the shots together. And, and, you know, this is 
a problem for people, right? We, we maybe a problem for you too. There's a lot of information coming in, vetted at different levels, and and just coming up with a kind of a workable, actionable picture of reality is very hard, Scott. It's it's very hard. It's hard for me, and I, I do this every day. This is my career, <laughs> so I, I you know again I can't imagine how challenging it is if you don't have those that resources and that kind of daily exposure to new evidence and new data. Um, I, I think what I, you know, what I myself do, I revert to sources of information that I trust and, you know, uh, certain bodies such as the CDC and the FDA, you know, continually review evidence. They have vaccine safety monitoring databases where if there is something, you know, they'll let people know about it. Um, I also look to public health figures that I trust and journalists that I trust in terms of you know, getting the information and presenting it in a clear and concise way. So it's really hard, but, you know, I encourage people to really work with a trusted uh, figure who is is aware of these changes since it is evolving and it's evolving fast. And for many people, that's their doctor. And, you know, I, I encourage them to ask their opinion about all these vaccines and safety profiles. And there's been a lot of changes. You know, as you mentioned, the co-administration of vaccines, and now we have RSV vaccines which is adding a whole nother layer of nuance into respiratory virus season. So there's a lot and there's a lot changing. And I think it's only going to continue year by year as we put more focus onto these respiratory viruses and public health interventions. And it's hard to keep up with all of it. You know, I certainly sympathize with that. And I think it's also important for for the medical establishment, the bioscience establishment, to admit what they don't know. Um, I was just listening. I am a nerd. Uh, so I was listening to Michael Osterholm uh, before this show. And Osterholm was saying a really interesting thing about, you know, about air exchange and about ventilation. He said, you know, we, we know it's good, but there really isn't a lot of testing yet about what's good in what way. In other words, if you have a call center where people have this much amount of personal space and there's this many people in that space and all this and this level of proximity, you know, do you need what number of air exchanges do you need per hour? <laughs> and he, he said nobody really that that number, those numbers don't exist yet. They may exist a year or two from now. Uh, all we know is a kind of rule of thumb, more ventilation, better than less ventilation. But I find it helpful when somebody says, we don't know. So I don't spend the rest of my afternoon trying to figure out whether somebody does know. Yeah, we, we do, a you know, as as healthcare and public health professionals, we do a very poor job of admitting what we don't know. And, and when we make recommendations outlining, you know, what that recommendation was based on, and the data behind it and, and the nuance behind it. And so that is certainly, I think that's been one of the key lessons I've learned with COVID about just how essential the messaging is about what's known, what's not known, and then why certain recommendations or actions are taken. Scott Roberts, you have been very generous with your time today. It's fun to talk to a fellow nerd. Uh, Scott Roberts is Associate, yes, Associate Medical Director for Infection Prevention at Yale Medicine, Assistant Professor in Infectious Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. Thanks so much. I'm sure we'll talk in the future. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Let's take a break. We're going to tell you a little bit about Paxlovid Rebound when we come back.
Make sure you never miss The Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why. Back to the show. All right, and thanks to Kat Pastor. That was her voice you just heard there. She's the technical producer of this show. Today's episode is produced by Jonathan McPants. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here at the end uh, with a term that you probably were hearing a lot more about a year ago, maybe, uh, but is still around and still worth thinking about, and more is becoming known about it. Uh, we're going to talk about Paxlovid Rebound, which, by the way, has nothing to do with basketball. Uh, joining us now is Mark Seidner, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and an infectious disease clinician and researcher in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. I should say that Dr. Seidner is joining us from a study site uh, visit in Uganda. So it's 946 where he is, and we'll see if there's any kind of Zoom lag or something, but we'll work with it. Uh, We're very lucky to get uh, Mark Seidner. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Pleased to be here. So, first of all, we should say what Paxlovid is. It's an antiviral. It really is, you know, in terms of post-infection treatment, probably the closest thing to a magic bullet that anybody's found so far. And it's really two antiviral drugs, right? Not one? It might be a little bit of a Uganda problem. Uh, Let's just uh, see if we can get him back in here. Um, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm back. I, okay. I did. I did lose you for one second. I apologize about that. No problem. Um, can you please just repeat that question for yeah, me? Sorry just, about that. Just maybe just make the point that Paxlovid is in fact two different antiviral drugs combined. Yeah. Well, for the that's right. It, it, these drugs, uh, it, it's really one primary drug that that works on the virus. There's a second drug that we add in there really to help it stay in the body longer and and, and make it as more effective. But we use them in combination, like we do for other antiviral drugs for HIV and things like that. We kind of learn a lesson from other diseases. But they, as you said, they're, they're very effective, and it's probably the most effective drug we have against uh, COVID-19. Uh, effective though it is, we really started hearing in 2022 about Paxlovid rebound. It's possible President uh, Biden uh, may have had one. Uh, Dr. Fauci uh, may have had one. And, and maybe first define rebound. What counts as a rebound? That's a great question. And I think it is a new phenomenon to us and it's something that we were learning about over the last year or two. And that's one of the things that our group was really trying to understand. We started studying this phenomenon once we heard about it, mostly in the light press like everyone else, by enrolling people who had taken Paxlovid and started to feel sick again. They felt better than they felt sick again. And when we studied these people, what we found was that their virus levels were dropping when they took Paxlovid, but then they came back up. And it's really this phenomenon that people recover from the disease They have usually a few days where they feel better and they actually stop shedding virus. And then the virus does come back. Their symptoms often, but don't always return. But we can find the virus being shed from their nose again. Which is also important because even if they're not heavily symptomatic in this rebound state, they may be infectious to other people. That's right. So one of the things that we've done as a group is not just test people using this PCR test that you know everyone knows about now. That test tells us if there's virus in your nose, but it doesn't tell us if that virus is alive or dead. In our studies, we actually take the virus and we also try to grow it in culture and see if it can still replicate. And that allows us to know, is this virus still capable of dividing and replicating? And is it therefore potentially contagious? And what we've found is that this rebound phenomenon does include virus that can replicate and therefore is potentially contagious. 
Yeah, just to remind our listeners, PCRs are really high, highly sensitive tests. So they will pick up virus or maybe even virus fragments uh, sometimes in, in different states of uh, of effectiveness. Um, and cycle thresholds can affect that too and stuff like that. So so it, it's interesting when you actually do the kind of test that you're talking about that we, we begin to know that. So one thing that started to be speculated about right away, but it was pure speculation, was maybe maybe the five-dose thing is the problem. Maybe it takes longer to knock out the COVID. What you're really seeing is at the end of the five days of Paxlovid, um, there's something left that hasn't been knocked out. Maybe we need to take Paxlovid more times. Maybe it needs to be an eight-dose sequence. Does anybody know anything more about that at this point? Yeah, so for the most part, when our drugs fail for things like infections, they fail for one of two reasons, broadly speaking. One of the reasons, and a very common reason actually, is that these bugs, bacteria, viruses, other things, can actually mutate. They can develop mutations that allow them to evade the drug or make the drug not as effective. One thing that we've done and many other groups have done is look to see if that's the cause of Paxlovid rebound. By taking the virus after rebound and see if it's mutated or changed in ways that the drugs no longer work. We have not found any evidence that that's the case. So we don't think at this point that resistance to the drugs is the problem. The other reason sometimes infections get bad after they've gotten better is because the the treatment wasn't long enough. And so you've knocked down the level of this infection, but you haven't completely wiped it out. And so it has a chance to come back. This is something that hasn't been proven, but I think many of us, or maybe most of us think that's likely the cause of Paxlovid rebound. And there are a couple studies, including some work that's been done by David Ho in New York, that have essentially modeled this and shown, I think, pretty convincingly that that a longer treatment duration with Paxlovid may actually be a solution to this problem. Um, but that's going to take FDA approval. Uh, I, my understanding is Pfizer is starting to test this, but it's we can't just wave a magic wand. My doctor can't say, you know what, I'm going to give you 10 instead of five. That's just not in the not in the cards right now. That's right. So it's not we are not FDA approved to give people more than five days. It's actually um, discouraged currently uh, by recommendations. But as you mentioned, uh, there is a study that's actually finished enrolling participants, and, and we're actually hoping—not uh, that I can speak for another study or another company—that uh, the results of that study should be out hopefully in the next few months, where they're taking people who are immunosuppressed or so high risk for having severe COVID nineteen and randomizing them to a five-day course versus a ten-day course, and we're hoping that that actually helps shed a lot more light on this issue. You know, in the first part of the show with Scott Roberts, I was talking about the public information problems that we've had, and some of this is also almost one of the, like one of those games where you repeat a message that you've gotten to another person who repeats it to another person. In the case of Paxlovid, it seemed as though one of the effects of that was people maybe getting the idea somehow that if they took Paxlovid, the rebound would be worse than if they had done nothing. Um, people somehow or other interpreted this uh, as, a, as a warning against using Paxlovid. I'm, I'm sure you would like to speak to that. Yeah, so as mentioned, uh, this is the best drug we have uh, mm. for COVID-19. And the, the Paxlovid clinical trial w- was really inc- incontrovertible. So, so they took people uh, who are at high risk for COVID-19, people over 50 years old or had immunosuppressing conditions or other chronic comorbidities, and, and half the people in that study uh, with COVID-19 got Paxlovid, half didn't. And they showed an 80% reduction in hospitalization or death. This is a drug I prescribe. I'm not going to stop prescribing it. Our data do not in any way challenge the notion that this is an effective drug. And it should be the first-line therapy that people have who are high risk when they get COVID-19. 
That That's extremely clear. I think what our study helps do is it does two things. One is, I think it really helps people understand how common rebound is and to know that it may happen. About 20% of people get it and they should be aware of that fact and potentially be prepared for it. Two is those studies for Paxlovid were done specifically in high-risk people and high-risk people should be taking Paxlovid. But there is not good data in support of using Paxlovid if you're low risk. And I think our data may give people a pause to say, should I be taking this medicine if I don't meet criteria just because I want, for example, this infection to go away quicker? Because I don't think... Um, you know, the data support that and the fact that one in five people rebound may also give people pause. If people um, are experiencing what seems to be a rebound, should they do rapid antigen tests? I mean, among among other things, once again, you want to know whether you're infectious, whether you could hurt somebody else. Does it make sense for them to do an RAT if they take Paxlovid and then the thing seems to come back? Absolutely. And so, again, this isn't in guidelines, but I, I would strongly recommend it uh, as an infectious disease provider. Uh, I think antigen tests, unlike PCR tests, actually are not extremely sensitive, but they're probably just as sensitive as we want them to be. What we have found and what some other people have found is that antigen tests actually correlate pretty well with that viral culture, with the fact that the virus is still growing and therefore potentially contagious. It's not perfect, but it's a much better measure than PCR, which can stay positive for a long time after you're no longer contagious. So uh, what we think is that uh, if you if you have if you take Paxlovid and your symptoms come back, yes, you should antigen test and be prepared to know that you may have rebounded and potentially need to isolate longer. The other thing that we found in our study, which I think deserves further study, uh, but I think was really compelling, was that when we looked at day ten, so five days after people stopped taking Paxlovid, a hundred percent of the people who rebounded had a positive antigen test at day ten, so five days after after mm. after done therapy, and zero percent of the people who didn't rebound. Uh, had, had a, basically had a positive viral culture, which makes me think that it could be that a test a few days after you finish taking Paxlovid could be a nice way of really understanding whether or not you're someone who is rebounding or not. All right. Um, that's all we have time for. I actually have even more questions about this, but maybe another time. Thank you so much. I know you're. it's late at night there and you're uh, in Uganda. Thanks for taking the time, Dr. Seidner. My pleasure. Thank you, too. Mark Seidner, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Infectious Disease Clinician and Researcher at the Division of Infectious Diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. We have to go. Hopefully, we won't be having a lot of conversations about COVID over the next 12 months. But if we need to, we will, because it's part of our mission. <laughs>